Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Anthropotamus. We're here today with Dr. Kara Ackelbach and Dr. Sarah Lacey. Uh, Dr. Ackelbach is a professor of anthropology at the University of Notre Dame, whose research focuses on human biology and uh, cold climate physiology. Uh, Dr. Lacey researches dental cavities and periodontal disease in Neanderthals and early modern humans. Um, and we'll be discussing their both their articles, two articles today, Woman the Hunter, the physio- Physiological Evidence, and also the Archaeological Evidence. So thank you, both of you, for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> Uh, before we actually get into the article, could each of you tell us, I mean, what led you into anthropology and your interest in w- women as hunters and what led you two to collaborate with each other? Who wants to go first? Oh, okay. <laughs> I just got the hand, so I guess it's me. <laughs> uh, so my origin and I guess story going into anthropology is a little bit of a depressing one. So I apologize off the bat to make everyone sad. Uh, so I, in undergrad, I went to the University of Michigan. Uh, I know it's probably a massive conflict of interest to be at Notre Dame, having gone to the University of Michigan. Uh, but I was that kind of stereotypical pre-med undergrad. Um, I took a couple of anthro classes here and there to fulfill various requirements for my graduate or for my undergraduate degree. But in my junior year of college, my mother was diagnosed with cancer, and from diagnosis to death was four months. It was a really, really rapid decline and one of those kind of catastrophic and formative experiences in my life. And once I had gotten on the other side of her passing, I kind of sat with myself and and thought, what is it I really enjoy doing? Because the thought of going into medicine and dealing with people dying on a regular basis and, you know, grief and all of that as a career sounded horrible considering what I had just gone through and was still working through as you know a 20 year old kid uh, and I went back to the the intro to anthropology it was a four field course that I took my sophomore year and like that was a lot of fun how about I take some more anthropology courses and just kind of see where things go and I took a archaeology course and a human evolution course and I just kind of fell in love with the human evolution aspect of things and then from that point on I took every single biological anthropology course you could imagine at the University of Michigan and decided to pursue my PhD Um, though I went in wanting to work on orangutan biomechanics which is the most far afield as you can imagine from what I do now (laughs) and that shifted to kind of human physiology and maybe my second year of graduate school and uh it's kind of been a that's been the path ever since and I guess as for woman the hunter and the roles of women hunting I come at it from two points of view one is the personal and one is the educational uh the personal one is I'm a formal power lifter and uh, when I was at the University of Albany in Albany, New York, and I was in a, it was in a pretty powerlifting, heavy gym, like everything revolved around the big three, and it was a toxic environment, and the comments I got from men at the gym about what women's capabilities were, and maybe I should stop lifting because my boobs would shrink, and I should be more careful, all of these insane comments, that got me thinking about women's physiological abilities and performance in different styles of exercise. And then when it came to the anthropological aspect of it, though that is arguably anthropological too, 
Um, it started actually here at Notre Dame a little bit more when we do fossil hominins in my class. I have my students as an assignment make an online dating profile for the fossil hominin of their choice, which is the most hilarious assignment ever. And I adore it and will never get rid of it. But the first time I ran it, every single student did their profile from the perspective of a man. It didn't matter if this, how the student identified in any way, shape or form, all of the fossil hominins, they were men fossil hominin online dating profiles. And that just got me wondering like, what the hell is going on? Why are the students automatically gravitating to the male perspective? And you know, it's and it comes to a lot of the historical things that Sarah and I write about in these articles is that a lot of human evolution has been written by men from the perspective of men and the role that men played in our evolutionary trajectory. And so that got me interested in kind of the physiological side of things as 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 well as how we represent and reconstruct our evolutionary past. Oh, that's such a nice uh, connecting overarching narrative. Uh, and from my perspective, I actually just always wanted to be an anthropologist. Like my parents have artwork I made in third grade, what Egyptology terribly misspelled, but like I, I kind of always known that that's what I wanted to do, uh, which is why I'm always surprised when my students don't know what anthropology is. Uh, but when I was applying for college, my parents were like, oh, well, we thought you were always going to like move on from this and get, some, get into something where you could actually get a job. And so I... I was doing economics in college, but secretly also taking anthropology classes. And once my, my mother took a new job um, where she was actually hiring archaeologists my junior year, she was like, oh, I didn't know, like, there's actually a lot of work for archaeologists. And I'm like, I've been secretly double majoring the whole time. Uh, and then got out of college in 2008 with the economy imploding and thought, I think I'm going to go pursue this further. I think this is the time to go get a PhD. And, you know, like Kara, I came in doing something totally different. I wanted to study homo erectus energetics because I thought that was like a really sexy topic at the time and um, ended up studying Neanderthals. But I had actually taken a class my senior year in undergrad on the anthropology of sex and reproduction. And this class like blew my mind. And I was even considering like going to midwifery school if I did not get into graduate school. And so I didn't have to activate that plan B, but I still had all those interests. And so in grad school, I actually got trained as a doula. Um, I was, you know, a doula for other graduate students in my grad program. Uh, I was even involved in a project um, with a professor who was both a gynecologist and an anthropologist interested in birth in chimpanzees, because in St. Louis, the zoo there had taken some of the chimpanzees off of birth control. And so I was like, oh my gosh, if we could actually get good documentation, video, them delivering, so much of this evidence is anecdotal and it would be great to actually have a study following pregnancy, um, delivery and labor for chimpanzees. Um, so those chimpanzees have very weird behaviors and though they were off birth control, none of them got pregnant um, because they were all hand reared and <laughs> had some interesting um, problems being sexually attracted to other chimpanzees. So that didn't happen. But that has continued to inform a lot of my interests. So even though I'm like studying Neanderthal oral and now hopefully respiratory health, I'm still interested in like, what does that mean for life for these people? What was it like for them? And, you know, often it loops back to these questions about like, what was it like to give birth for them? What was it like to be a woman in the Paleolithic? 
And so Karen and I are coming from it from these two different places and different expertise, but it was this really logical place and where we intersected and we've been talking about this for a while and she's working on a book on like women and evolution. And so it was like, oh, this is a great time for us to like explore where our interests overlap because we had already written a paper together on Neanderthal cold adaptation that had we thought was really great. We really enjoyed the experience of working together. And so we were excited to try um, another topic. That is, those are two very awesome stories. <laughs> um, so, you, so, so how did you two end up collaborating for this article? Well, we went to the same graduate program. So we had actually just been friends throughout graduate school and stayed friends, you know, so we're texting about like, you know, just like BS in the discipline. And then, you know, it'll turn into, oh, well, like, have you seen this paper or, you know, it, it's a, both a friendship and an academic relationship. And I would also say, I would think I, one day I was complaining to Sarah that I felt woefully inadequate writing this book and, you know, lots of imposter syndrome coming through. And she had this wonderful idea of, hey, let's actually write a paper so that like you have your foot in the door with this, at least academically. And uh, I thought that was a, I kind of put it on hold, I think, for a little bit until we came to having to submit abstracts for the American Association of Biological Anthropologists. And I think I texted Sarah at one point, like, hey, you want to do paired talks for the AAVAs? And so we did the Woman, the Hunter paired talks, which then led to the manuscripts and, and articles that you see today. Was that at the last AAVAs? Uh, previous, so 2021. Okay. I think it was the first time back in person post-COVID. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I, I don't think I went to that one. Denver, Denver. No, I was definitely yeah. not at Denver. I was in Reno though. Um. Darn it, I missed it. Sound like it would have been really interesting though. <laughs> I went to ask instead. <laughs> uh, so moving on to, um, to start easing our way into the article. So, you know, beginning in the early years of anthropology, we have this very, this view of man, the hunter, very masculine image, uh, really that kind of like created this strict view of division and labor between men and women. Can you explain how that had that image has evolved over the years? Well, I mean, I think, yeah. So part of where this idea comes from is like hunter-gatherer studies. Like there's this analogy to people who are living foragers today and there's not that many forager populations still around. And some of the ones that are heavily studied um, have a division where males do the majority of the hunting. And so from that data point, you had people just extrapolating that, oh, well, if that's how it's happening today, it's how it must have been in the past. Um, also, it's predominantly male researchers coming into this, coming from these, you know, very, what we consider traditional, but obviously not as so traditional as to be Paleolithic, ideas about gender roles. And so they just were like kind of the de facto assumption of what was applied to the past. And you had this snowballing of theories coming out of it that like oh but male hunting then allowed them to show off to females it allowed the increase in brain size and it just became like this lodestar that like everything comes out of male driven hunting and no one was really questioning that assumption yeah I, i'll piggyback a little bit and hopefully this won't cut into any other questions that yeah there were all these ideas that it was 
hunting is the reason humans are the way they are today and it's only men doing the hunting therefore evolution only acted upon the males and females are these passive beneficiaries um when likely given that that females are kind of the the the, the choke point when it comes to evolutionary forces because they are the ones that give birth um that kind of thing is just kind of shoved aside and that everything is man the hunter man the hunter and there was this amazing you know feminist questioning and pushback against these theories in the the 70s and the 80s in particular and um the last time there's been that big push was the 80s so that's over 40 years ago and in that intervening 40 years there's been a whole slew of new archaeological evidence out that shows that there's females were hunting and there's no reason to think that they weren't hunting uh but also there's been a whole lot of biological evidence physiological evidence to show that females aren't these physically frail fragile individuals that couldn't have hunted because of their physical inferiority that kind of data just didn't exist in the 70s and 80s and so we are not here to say that that feminist work didn't exist it is absolutely foundational and it is why we are here today and able to do what we are able to do uh we just wanted to update the story because a lot has happened since then you mentioned uh evidence that has arisen over the past few decades. Can you give examples of evidence that show that women have, both an archeological record and ethnographic research that do show that women do participate in hunting activities? Well, I'll take the archeological and, and give Kara the ethnographic. So archeologically, right, when we look at early humans, looking at pathology, repetitive use, um, all sorts of things, they're doing the same things. So if, if males are hunting, then females are hunting because they have all the same trauma patterns on their body, right? Like in Neanderthals. Uh, there are some differences that appear in um, early modern humans in the upper Paleolithic, like slight, slightly higher rates of thrower's elbow in males. It doesn't mean females don't have thrower's elbows, but it is more common in males. But if we also like, you know, we're anthropologists. So let's like look at the cultural milieu that's happening at that time. They're also innovating all sorts of new tools at that time bow and arrow, the atlatl, fishing hooks, fishing nets, like all these things come out of this time period. So it's also possible that you are seeing like less strain on the body because of the innovation of these new kinds of hunting techniques at that at that same time. So from my perspective, like if <laughs> if males are hunting, then females are also hunting. Um, but there actually are a few sites that very like solidify this idea of female hunters, um, like the site in Peru where you have multiple women buried with um, hunting implements, making it like very clear, like this was something that belonged to this individual in life. Um, and when we look at burial um, uh, goods in Europe, for instance, I mean, that's my specialty, so I'm a little bit biased towards Europe. Um, there's no differences in the grave goods between male and female burials, even in the upper Paleolithic. So as far as uh, like, hunting in generally in general goes and and just um thinking about the what it would take to survive in that sort of environment it, it seems like from a logical standpoint you would have to have everybody contributing right it wouldn't just and and, and as somebody who's actually you know done a bit of study on how to forage properly and other things like that like there's not i mean there's plenty of stuff out there but there's not that not enough to really justify saying that somebody would only do that or half the population would only gather that doesn't make sense especially how with how difficult it is to to hunt with you know 
modern equipment, much less something that you you made with uh, you know your own hands. Yeah, <laughs> and we make that argument. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. Uh, yesterday, I do I do hunting with my students in my fundamentals of bioanth class, and I have this big Home Depot lawn unicorn that got wrapped in fur to look like a woolly rhinoceros. And I go and I take, you know, an atlatl, traditional bow and arrow, slings and a spear, and they all get to try their hand at hunting. And for one, they're all terrible at it. <laughs> it's absolutely terrible that this is a skill uh, that needs to be learned and anyone can learn it. And as the students get more practice with it, you see absolutely no differentiation uh, between the, the females in class and males in the class and in skill acquisition for hunting. Uh, but yeah. That's the argument we make. They lived in such small populations, there's no way people could have specialized because it needed to be, as we talked about in another interview, all hands on deck. I think you also mentioned this, but um, I mean, to put it in perspective, hunting tools like spears, bows, atlatls, all of those are force multipliers, which means the total amount of force you start with doesn't, it doesn't uh, predetermine whether or not you're able to use it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, exactly. you, if you've learned the skill. Yeah, exactly. It is very, very skill-based. And, and it's also very specific skill-based. So this will go back to the students hunting, um, like with the atlatl. I had several baseball pitchers in class the first time I ran this, and they, they came out thinking that they were going to kill it. And they were terrible. They might have been the worst ones, maybe because they came in with that false sense of confidence. And so that's also another really good example of the skills of today can't necessarily tell you how well somebody would have been at something for the skills of the past since a lot of people use baseball pitchers today to try to understand the evolution of human throwing it's very context dependent and specific yeah i mean baseball is like just trying to I'm not good at baseball. I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing with that, but what I can say is that um, just the, uh, just like your, your basic pitch has a lot of, a lot of different technique going into it. I can imagine that um, trying to coordinate the, that specific skill to an entirely different skill, some things might transfer like the total physical strength, maybe, but again, it's like you said before in, in the article, uh, they're using tools, right? A, a baseball is, you know, you're, you're throwing, it's, it's, I guess, closer to throwing a rock, but I don't know. I, I see, I see that as a bit of a difference there. Prehistoric curveball, <laughs> the prehistoric slider. <laughs> I know I want somebody hilarious. to do that study. Uh, Ashley, do you want me to go back to the ethnographic part? <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, yeah, I forgot where we were at. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, so I'll keep short on this because, you know, biological anthropologists, the, my, my ethnographic skills and understanding are limited for sure, but I can rely on the work of others that has been done well. Uh, and so we do have modern hunter-gatherers where females are hunters. We see this with the Aka, we see this with the Agta, Chobrian Islanders, there are a couple of Australian groups as well. Females hunt. Um, females will uh, be, specify is not the right word, specialize is the right word, they will specialize in fishing and all of these things. So you do see variation. It is true that today, across modern hunter-gatherers, males are more often the hunters. They are more 
they are predominantly the hunters across human hunter gatherers today. But again, hunter gatherers today are not truly representative of hunter gatherers in the past. They are not fossils frozen in time. They've been evolving the past two million years like everyone else. Uh, and so we always have to be careful with that interpretation. Uh, and then recent work from Kara Walshefler's lab came out examining uh, an ethnographic database looking for all ethnographies that explicitly mention hunting and who is doing the hunting, which of course drastically shrinks down the number of ethnographies they can work with uh, because not all of them are that explicit in what they talk about. And within the ones that they found, which I think was like 65 or so different populations, they found 80% of them where females were hunting. Uh, and so this is pretty strong evidence that it's not as uncommon as we like to think. Um, and we cannot throw it out as this idea that females are females hunting was incredibly rare. That doesn't seem to be the truth of the matter and that we should be going into our reconstructions of the past with the null hypothesis of no extreme sexual division of labor and have the evidence show us that there is one if it is present. Can you briefly explain, so in the physiological evidence, right, we talk about the difference between men and women. Uh, can you explain um, the physiological differences of men and women that have been used to suggest that women were not hunters and then and then what evidence shows that it, that would support them as being hunters? Mm -hmm. So I come, I'm very honest about this, that there are on average differences between if we do a strict binary of females and males, there are on average differences that would give male an advantage in things like power and strength. Males typically have more muscle mass and especially that's in the upper body. And so if you're imagining hunting taking place with throwing implements or anything in which upper body strength is truly, truly necessary, males would have that advantage. Uh, and also we see it like, you know, all the online comments of like, oh, let me just show you marathon times of males versus females to disprove your argument. Like, yeah, sure. Uh, male marathon times these days are about on average 10 minutes faster than female marathon times. Uh, but let's make two points about that. One as Sarah and I were texting back and forth how biologically meaningful in a hunt situation would that 10 minutes actually be when we talk about persistence hunting, which is just long wearing down of an animal. Uh, and two, let's keep in mind that the vast, and I mean vast majority of research done in exercise physiology, looking at training, nutrition, recovery, all of those things that go into like perfecting and optimizing an athlete, all of that research, almost all has been done on males. And then they just scale it down to females and they treat them like smaller males. And that's just not how that's going to work. So I think we are really far off from optimizing, quote unquote, if you will, female athletic performance. And I wouldn't be surprised that if things get closer and closer, the gap between the sex-based gap actually gets more narrow as we get better research and actually figuring out the best way to train females for various events. Uh, and so, yes, absolutely males have, they are larger body size, more upper body strength, and that could potentially be really important. Females, however, seem to be more metabolically suited for endurance activities. So things that don't require a lot of power and strength, but you can keep a low intensity activity going for a very long period of time. Females are more fatigue resistant. And part of that is female bodies typically burn more fats than carbohydrates. You get more calories from fats and it's a slower metabolic process, which means more consistent energy is provided over a longer period of time. 
Uh, and this is in addition to different muscle fiber types where females tend to have more of the endurance type one fibers, male have more of the like powerlifting, as I call it, uh, type two fibers. And so females seem to be better suited for endurance activity. And that endurance activity is really what would have been important for the persistent style hunting we believe to have been taking place um, early on in, in human evolution, that they would have just run and worn down the animal before giving the final killing blow, which if an animal is worn out, you don't need anywhere near as much upper body strength as, as you would need if the animal were up and running and ready to go. Um, females have also been documented ethnographically of carrying heavy loads twice their weight over extremely long distances. And so again, there's all this setup of females had the ability to carry out these different tasks and potentially may have had an advantage in some cases with endurance uh, relative to males. But the most important point is, is that there is absolutely no biological evidence to suggest that females were physically inferior to the point of not being able to take part in these hunts. They would have been just as capable of doing it, perhaps using different techniques but they were highly capable hunters. And we see this with the fossil record with like Neanderthals, as I'm sure Sarah will talk about in a little bit with injury rates and in hunting. And can I just add to that? Like talking about sexual size dimorphism, like, cause as someone who teaches forensic anthropology, for instance, it is like very biased towards Europeans. So European populations have some of the most sexual size dimorphism of any population, closer to 15%. But it's many populations in the world, it's more like 8%. So a lot of people commenting, like, men are so much bigger than females. And you can tell a male skeleton so much more easily apart from a female skeleton, all these things. But like, that, it, that does not hold true across populations of, outside of Europe. And even still, human sexual size dimorphism is not that big. We are not hugely sexually dimorphic. Yeah, I mean, even then, like, 15% is the max, basically. For me. Oh, and on that, I always think it's funny when people say that because my husband's smaller than me. <laughs> but um, um, reading about uh, women's endurance and uh, body strength, it reminded me of when I was uh, pregnant and I was going through, you know, baby class and they commented saying that a woman being pregnant is like us walking up a mountain every day. And yeah. I always think of that about us having to carry that weight all yep. the time. <laughs> so this is actually something I'm exploring as well of thinking that bipedalism may have unlocked endurance capacities that were already in place due to the physiological changes associated with pregnancy. So a lot of the, the changes that come with all of the metabolic things that happen during pregnancy mirror what we see when somebody trains for an endurance event. And so I would not be surprised that this is something I'm working on with a colleague to, to try to explore a little bit more, but I think pregnancy could have had a huge, huge, huge effect on those endurance capacities that would not have really come out until we became striding bipeds. Um, so you do mention in the physiological evidence article that there isn't really much research done on women athletes. I mean, is what research would you like to see done? One, I would just like to see massive cohorts of females being put through the exact same studies that males have, just trying to reach some level of equality of looking at the data 
to get the numbers that we need. And then I think a second one is there's been, and this is not so much relating to this paper, but this is just my own personal thing. There are two others here, is one current work on the impact of the menstrual cycle on female performance is really terrible. They often don't measure hormones because it's expensive and it's invasive. So I get it. Like I get why it's a problem, but they all, they will make assumptions that every female is on a 28 day cycle. And so they'll ask when was, you know, the first day of your last period and they assume a 28 day cycle and then assume the hormone levels based on that. And so you honestly have no clue how a menstrual cycle is impacting physical performance, but you don't actually have data on where an individual is at in said menstrual cycle. Um, and then the other thing I would like to see is a whole lot more attention paid to estrogen and the effects that it has on everybody's body, no matter the sex. Uh, I think it is, I don't think, I think a lack of estrogen is incompatible with life. Uh, we see a fair amount of, well, fair amount relative of androgen insensitivity disorder that is far more common than estrogen insensitivity disorder. And there have only been three documented cases of estrogen insensitivity order, disorder that I know. And that's related to only one estrogen receptor, which is not even an important one. And those people still have pretty terrible health uh, issues. Uh, so I would love to see a lot more research done on estrogen in general, but also its effects on athletic performances. Some people are starting to use it as a performance enhancing drug. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Les, do you have any more comments before we move on or questions? Uh, I, I did, but I completely lost them. Every time, every time you talk, Kara, it, I just get engrossed and yeah, I, I lost it. <laughs> Thank <Adam>. you. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so not right now. <laughs> I had one for Lacey and I forgot it too. I, I got to start like writing things down during these shows. Uh, I'm sure it'll come to me like when we're finished. Um, so since these articles have come out, have you guys received any criticism? And how would you like to respond to that? <laughs> I mean, yes, um, <laughs> academic papers, really not so much. Like the, we got really, really positive responses. So many really lovely emails from colleagues, like so glad you did this. Can't wait to assign this in a class. Messages from grad student groups saying like, oh, we read this in our reading circle, loved it, you know, really positive. Um, but the Scientific American piece, I think a lot of people, they see a headline, they don't read the piece and they're coming into it with a lot of, assumptions about gender roles, right? That kind of reinforce their worldview. So there was a lot of negative comments on the Twitter post from Scientific American, uh, mostly to the effect of like, we don't know what we're talking about or these sort of like maybe these gotchas, like, but you didn't consider this, but most of the gotchas were things that were actually covered in the American anthropologist paper. You know, things like, well, what about cave art? And it's like, well, we talk about it and no, there are no images of male hunting in cave art. Um, things like that. Uh, we did, you know, really try to engage the question, the the people who were critiquing, who had like legitimate questions, or we could answer that. You know, not so much on Twitter because that's, you know, <laughs> kind of a cesspool. Um, <laughs> but you know, with students or people who emailed us directly with, you know, it non-aggressive and <laughs> genuine questions, trying to engage that. Um, but I think a lot of the critique from people is mostly just that they feel like their intuition about how life was like in the past somehow must trump our 
doctorate degrees. Yeah, I've gotten some hate mail. Uh, quite so. So you all know, I am the sole reason there are women firefighters, and that's apparently destroying the profession. I have that amount of power. Just so you all know, <laughs> those are the kinds of emails you do not respond to. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's been hectic. It's 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 a bit wearing and it's a bit exhausting. I won't lie. Uh, but part of me feels like, you know, you're doing good work when you get some reactions and I wish people were more amenable to actually having a discourse than just being like, you're a cretin and you're an idiot. And that's not any sort of constructive criticism whatsoever. And a big part of what we're trying to do right now. So I emailed American anthropologists this morning to see if we can get the two American anthropologist pieces to be open access for just like a month. Uh, because it's behind a paywall right now. And so people who are criticizing that, oh, you left out A, B, and C, they're all in the papers, but they're papers they can't read because they don't have access to them. So we're really hoping that we can get open access to that at least for a little while so then we can re-promote alongside the Scientific American article and give people an opportunity to see the argument in full. I'm not going to lie. As, uh, as, as much as I um, have, you know, tried to make myself see things from every perspective um there is always that little that little twinge in the back of your mind when you see something that affects uh well let me just rephrase um as a man reading that men you aren't the only thing in the universe that matters it gives i know it gives you a a visceral reaction it's like you have to slow down and think but <clears throat> i mean at the same time like you said there's a paywall um, so there's always that excuse. I don't have access to it. I don't need to care about it. You know, um, when it, if, if you do get open access for that, I, I would very much like to, uh, to know about that so we can promote it for you. A couple things I remembered I wanted to discuss about, we didn't get to discuss tool making because you do discuss that in the article and how we always think, oh, men are making their tools. Well, why wouldn't women be able to make these tools also? It would make sense. Women are gonna need tools also to get, even if they were just gathering, which they probably were not, they still need to know how to make tools to do their tasks. Um, and, well, we argue both sides <laughs> of that, right? Like. One, we have no way of knowing who was the flint knapper, right? Who made the tool? Maybe that'll change in the future because there was that article this earlier this year arguing that they found traces of female DNA on a pendant. But I mean, that doesn't tell us necessarily who made it, just like who wore it, potentially whoever really had last contact with it. But maybe there's going to be some some future um, techniques that would allow that to be unlocked. But until then, right, we don't know who the makers are, and there's kind of this funny. Um, uh, conflict and the way people talk about it because they talk about the, the flint napper as consistently masculine but then say that pro uh, behaviors like processing leather is a domestic activity that women would have done but it requires stone tools to do that so are they arguing that women like get men to make processing tools for them um, and can't sharpen and you know refine their own pieces like it seems incredibly unlikely so even if you want to hold to this whole like, you know, domestic sphere as the sphere of women thing, uh, it still requires that women can flip now. <laughs> so 
I think what we need to really just like challenge ourselves with the language that we use around stone tools and recognize that it's like a heavily masculinized language and that it's not appropriate. We don't have the data to back it up and it's kind of just silly. As a, as a small note on that, it just seems like there's a bit of a flawed logic in saying that flint napping would be a masculine thing even given the uh, like the social structure that we're assuming, I mean, just consider the nature of the work. It's it's small and um, very very detailed. You, when when we're talking about hunters and in, in, in the male context, you, I mean, I don't generally think about that as a you're working on this tiny little thing. You're more of a it's more of the idea of you're going out there and you're you're going to kill the thing. Uh, I think the only reason that it's a, it's an assumption uh, or the assumption that it's a male task is that it's a weapon, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it, that's just what it seems like to me. Like it, it, it's breaking its own logic in claiming that it's a specifically male task. We actually like leave a little breadcrumb for a future graduate student suggesting like, wouldn't it be a great topic to look at like, uh, the preponderance of images of hunting tools, description lengths of hunting tools relative to processing tools in archaeological pieces. <laughs> it's like a master's project, right? But maybe some student will pick up that call. I noticed it. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things of just like there's always this elevation, and we talk about it in the paper, of meat eating and then the implements used to get said meat. When honestly, the plant material and other things that could be picked up without weapons or obtained without weapons made up the vast majority of the calories our ancestors were eating. But there's always this glorification of meat and the hunt. That also reminded me of something that I that uh, a question or a thought that I had while reading it is just like how how many men out there hate eating fruit or or nuts or anything like that. The liver I, king. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We've like, got an N of one, the liver king. <laughs> I, I know for a fact that I've seen several people eat, several men eat grapes. So you, no, you know, no, I know. That's right? a lie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that one bit. That doesn't fit my worldview. Only meat. <laughs> Um, before we have to wrap this up, something else I wanted to mention was you do bring up this idea that women having to breastfeed and take care of the children an excuse not to go out. I mean, really, I mean, nobody really probably wants to go hunting when you have to breastfeed every other hour. Um, that sounds exhausting. I think what every ounce of breast milk, you're burning like 20 calories. So can you imagine how many calories are you burning in a day and then having to go out? I get it. Been there. But once you pass that period or you just want to get away from your child, either one, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, really there's still this, I mean, there's still other individuals like the child's grandmother and the, what is it? The grandmother hypothesis or whatever it's called, right? You have other people there to help take care of your children. So, I mean, to me, it's not a very good argument for why women can't go out and hunt. Yeah, there's the grandmother hypothesis. And as we talked about in our interview earlier today, Sarah, like the communal child care is something very uniquely within our lineage. 
But again, this is another thing that pregnancy and even lactation are not these debilitating periods in a, a woman's life. And they had to keep doing what they were doing to survive as well. We see this across mammals that female mammals can't just stop everything because they're pregnant or that they're lactating. They still have to get the food they need to eat. And I mean, one of the wonderful human examples of this is that example of Sophie Power who ran you know, the ultra marathon three months after giving birth, which means she was training for the ultra marathon while heavily pregnant and before. And she was still lactating while running that ultra marathon and fully capable of doing so. And so the idea that these periods uh, of a woman's life would be debilitating for her physical activity is, is I, I'll just say it, bullshit. Well, in the last week in the New York Times, right? Did you guys see the article about a woman who she's a runner and she's continuing to run while pregnant and all the negative comments she gets from people out, you know, how dare you be out running in the state of pregnancy? I mean, even when I was, had just given birth and I was breastfeeding, I mean, I was back, you know, I know Les doesn't like bringing up where he works because he still works there, but I don't work there anymore. So, oh, well, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was loading big rig trucks. I, you know, average size of the package was 40 packages. 40 pounds a package, but his average weight is 40 pounds a package. We're supposed to be loading 300 packages an hour, three to 400 packages an hour. I was still loading the trucks. I was probably, you know, and breastfeeding every other hour. So, I mean, it's, I mean, we're not as delicate as people like to think we are. Uh, just, I, I mean, I hate to just throw another random comment in, but I'm going to anyway. Um, as far as uh, the pregnant woman running a marathon, I've never once run a marathon and I consider myself a pretty fit guy. I, I, you know, it's just not going to happen, but, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, these people are the extremes, right? They yeah. are the extremes. I, I, Extreme, there's a reason I chose lifting over running. <laughs> and, and I've done some lifting too. And that, you know what? I, I, I wasn't that great. Like I was okay. I have good form, but uh, I was not dedicated enough. And you know what? Anybody who is, is very impressive. Uh, same thing for the, for the marathon thing uh, as somebody who is fairly fit, even in, you know, much later in life than I actually imagined I would be. Um, yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, it's, it boggles my mind that people will do that to themselves voluntarily. voluntarily. Yeah. Our survival I, I doesn't have, depend on it. <laughs> I have not done a marathon. I have done several half marathons, but I think 13.1 miles is as far as I will go. I did a 5K once and I walk jogged it. <laughs> I did a 5K last month. 5K is if they have obstacle courses because I find running so boring that there need to be things to entertain me along the way. <laughs> Oh man! Okay, I did I run over we... a bridge. <laughs> oh, oh, it was it. That was that's impressive. Yeah, that uh, changes yeah. all of it now. <laughs> I know, right? It's a it's a real competition. <laughs> oh, I guess you have a meeting you need to go to, so we'll start wrapping this up. Um, so what what is next for you guys? What research do you plan on doing next? 
Uh, so I've got the book, which is gonna, it's titled, um, what is it titled? That's what she said, the story of Hugh woman evolution. <laughs> I've got that level of sense of humor, everybody. Um, and the full draft is due in January with Princeton University Press. Uh, but I also received over the summer an NSF grant to continue my work in Finland with the reindeer herders there to look at cold climate adaptations, as well as the impact of climate change on health. We will keep us updated and we would definitely like to have you back on the show for the, to review that book. Awesome. It's been I'm a still excavating, So yeah, I'm still excavating in Macedonia every summer. Um, I have a baby due in February, but I still plan to be back in the field with four month old, just as I was in the trenches this summer pregnant. Um, and that doesn't fit my worldview, Sarah. You can't possibly be pregnant and carry on with your life. <laughs> you know, just crawl out of a two meter deep trench, vomit in a bush and get back in there, um, which did happen. Uh, so continuing that and then hoping to apply for some grants to look at respiratory health, um, do some preliminary, you know, methodology testing before actually applying it to the, to the fossil record. And then, you know, coming, Kara and I keep coming up with new ideas for things we want to work on together because, uh, now I'm at a R1 institution and I actually get time to not just think about the things that I think are cool, but actually, you know, put pen to paper. You guys sound like you have a lot of fun things going on right now. Yeah, <laughs> it's just been a lot. It's uh, trying to prioritize everything is not the easiest of tasks, but hey, it's the work we love to do. Les, before we wrap this up, do you have anything else to say? Uh, I was just going to say it's been a genuine pleasure uh, reading your article and talking to both of you. Oh, thank you Thanks both Thanks for so having much. us. Well, thank you for being on the show. Uh, for those watching us on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe, um, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. All right. Thank you all so much. I'm going to jet off to my next thing. So <laughs> thank, thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.